Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you here this morning. Hi, Marcia. How you doing? Good. Good. Uh, I want to start by apologizing. I, did, did you like our praise band? Because I apparently set it up for them to have a special to start the service. Because I put the slides together and I got the wrong version of the song. Sorry. So uh, we got to enjoy listening to a special music just before we uh, sang together here. But uh, thank you, praise team, for uh, all that you do and for leading us to the throne and preparing our hearts in song. I uh, really enjoy uh, having you here and doing that, and Kurt as well, when you're leading us uh, in him. Uh, good stuff. Is your heart prepared this morning? Amen. All right. If it's not, then this is going to be a bit more of a struggle for you, and God's going to use those uh, proverbial two-by-fours this morning as we get into his word. Uh, so next week, I encourage you to come prepared to uh, let God prepare your heart in song, so this time is a little bit easier for you. Uh, in our study, we are going to jump back into the book of Mark, all right, so if you have your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 2. I know it's been a couple of weeks, uh, I blame Mark, uh, but uh, it, it, it's been a couple of weeks, right, and uh, you remember Pastor Mark shared uh, on March 14th, we looked at uh, Mark chapter 2, and on the 7th, we started chapter 2. And so we had a couple of weeks off since then, uh, two weeks, and then uh, Easter. And so we're going to jump right back in uh, and conclude chapter 2 and get started with chapter 3 here this morning. And as you are looking at the beginning of that text, uh, I'm going to start us off by saying there are three uh, questions that are brought about in this text that we're going to take a look at. And uh, the first two are uh, kind of snarky, right? The, the, the questions that we're going to look at are some people that are uh, not too big fans of Jesus and are wanting to try and trip him up or accuse him or, or get him uh, to stumble here. And so we're going to see his uh, brilliant response to those. Uh, if anybody has a brilliant response to questions when they're trying to get you, uh, it's going to be Jesus. And uh, as I was telling my wife uh, last night uh, about something, she's like, you're going to say that tomorrow, aren't you? It's like, yep. So this is what I said, is, is that uh, it's one of the things that pastors do as we're studying and looking through a text, uh, we come up with illustrations or an analogy or something to help better communicate that to our present day, right? And so you're sitting there listening to these stories, and Julie's usually sitting there like, what's he going to say? What's he going to use? Is it going to make sense? Please don't let him say anything dumb, right? And... Uh, Jesus did all the work for us because he's got three illustrations to answer the first question, so I don't even get to come up with one. So I guess you just get to be thankful in and of, your, of, of that here this morning. But uh, here in verse 18 is where we're going to pick up. And Jesus has been having some confrontations with uh, the religious establishment of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes that uh, are feeling like they are cornering the market on this uh, religious stuff. And here comes Jesus, God himself, uh, wanting to present something new. And you can imagine that uh, they're balking at that at this point. So, into the text, verse 18, Mark chapter 2, says, Now John's disciples... And the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, to Jesus, Why did John's disciples, here's the first question, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples 
don't. Hmm. Right? First thing I'd like us to take, uh, to take a brief look at is that word fast or fasting. What is that? Uh, being a Baptist, that's not my favorite thing in the world to do. I like food, right? And so fasting is not the first thing that probably comes to our minds. Uh, but what was it? Fasting was a time that was set aside to seek the presence of God. And so you would set aside various things, food, or in our culture today, you might take your cell phone and set that aside for a whole day. I'd encourage you to do that because that is a lot of fun because then you actually get to experience life, right? Uh, whereas when you have your cell phone, you just experience you know, words with friends and Facebook and stuff of that nature. So come back to real life, folks. Put your phone away for a day and just uh, see what the Lord does with you. It's, it's great stuff. Uh, but fasting to seek the presence of God. Fasting was something that was put into practice in Leviticus 16 as a once-a-year thing. Once a year. Okay? At, at the Day of Atonement, this national day of repentance and forgiveness for the Jewish people. So once a year, you would have this time of fasting. Well, I just got done speaking with our students. We're going through the Baptist distinctives, and we did the letter P, which stands for Priesthood of the Believers. Today, And so we talked about how uh, God established uh, the priests and the Levites to, to take care of some of these responsibilities on that day and how Jesus came to be that final, uh, I don't want to say final, but that perfect high priest uh, for us. And now we as believers are believer priests, right? We have the opportunity to go before God ourselves and communicate with him, to, to pray to him and to repent before him directly. You don't need to come to me. You don't need to come to Pastor Mark and set aside some time for confession. Right? Our, day, our weeks are pretty busy enough as it is. If I had to think about all y'all coming to my office to repent, there needs to be more time in, in the week, right? So praise the Lord for Jesus. Praise the Lord that, that I can go before him. You can go before him directly. Fasting was a time uh, set aside for that day to, to be focused on those kinds of things. But the Pharisees and the scribes, these are, are kind of pious guys that suggest that godly people, okay, if you want to be real godly, you fast twice, right? Twice a week. Okay, we just jumped, right, from once to 104 times. 104 times. It was, it was Monday and Thursday, if you want to use our calendar. It'd be every Monday and every Thursday we're fasting. Now, what does that look like for us today? Sometimes it might be that, that whole analogy of uh, if you really want to be uh, godly and, and real Christian folks, then not only do you come to church, but you come to Sunday school too. And not only do you come to Sunday school, we don't have night church right now, okay, but you come to night church too. And not only do you come to those three services on a Sunday, but hey, you come on Wednesday too. And any other time the doors are open, you better be there. Right? That's what the real godly people do. I wouldn't go quite so far. Sure, we need to and want to be uh, in the fellowship of other believers, but let us not get so pharisaical in our thinking that uh, one of you is more godly than somebody else because you go to every single service. And you know what? You even help clean the church sometimes too. 
The Pharisees had an attitude uh, towards religion, and their attitude came from a place of false assumption that true religion was a solemn, joyless practice. Isn't that a church you want to join? A solemn, joyless practice. There's, uh, uh, in my reading here this week, there's a lady named Irma Bombeck. She was a, there's some noise here, so apparently we know she writes uh, humorous things in newspapers and things like that, right? Hmm? Yeah, well, I know that. She, she's no longer with us today. All right, but her words are, and I'm going to read you something that she said, right? Uh, where was it? She tells how she was sitting in church, just like you are right now, one Sunday when a small child turned around and began to smile at people behind her. Maybe you've been the person staring at the little kid turned around smiling at you, right? She was just smiling at the people behind her, not making any sound. But when her mother noticed that she uh, was turned around doing this, in a stage whisper, she said, Hey, stop that grinning. Turn around. This is church. She gave her a swat and said, That's better. Irma concluded that some people come to church looking like they just read the will of their rich aunt and learned that she had given everything to her pet hamster. <laughs> Think about that, folks. What kind of a church do, do, do we want? What kind of a church has God established? Are, are we coming to... I heard you guys laughing just now, by the way. Shame on you, right? What kind of church do we want to be a part of? A church that is, is joyous at the cross and what God did on the cross and what we talked about last Sunday? Or do we want to be at a church just like this? We'll listen as the pastor preaches, and then we're going to go home, and you better not have burned the roast. <laughs> right? What, what is your attitude right now, folks? Are you here because you want to experience the, the joy that God has for us? You want to learn about what God has for us in his scriptures? I pray that that is one of the reasons you are here. But the Pharisees, they, they would adorn themselves in such a way that it looked very, very rough. Right? They, they, could not be, they believed that you couldn't be spiritual unless you're uncomfortable. Hmm. They thought spirituality makes you do things you don't want to do and that it keeps you from doing the things that you want to do. Man, just think about what, what does our countenance look like if that's our understanding and, and how we practice Christianity. On Friday, we had a, a, a 104 cars lined up here. We had 50 or so people helping out in the food pantry. Again, thank you so much if you're here helping with that. Um, but one of the things, I notice a lot of people having fun over there while they're working. I notice a lot of smile, laughter, and banter going on. And one of the things I notice is, the, are the gosses here today? Awesome, I'm going to talk about them. So John is, is over there. John Goss is, is kind of welcoming cars as they get up to the front. And that dude is just a chatterbox, and he's smiling and just interacting with every single person in those cars. And I'm just thinking, oh, my. Man, John Goss would not do good in this kind of a situation, right? We are a church that loves God. John loves God, and that is giving him the energy to do what he's doing because he's not here just to hand out food. 
He's not here just to take up some time in his schedule. He's here because he loves Jesus and he wants Jesus to just ooze from every part of himself. And I pray that that is is me and that is you. Now, that's just the first verse. Fasting, right? But it's also setting the stage for the next few verses that are to come. Thanks to the legalism imposed by the scribes and the Pharisees, understand that the Jewish religion, the people of the day, had become burdensomed by this. The people felt weighted down by rules and regulations that were impossible to obey. We have signs on the doors as you come in that say, no laughing, no talking, no hugging, no shaking of hands. Sit down and listen. There'd be a few less people probably sitting in the pews right now, or you'd just come in complete defiance, hug, shake hands, laugh, talk, all those things. Amen. Thank you for that. That's a good amen right there. Let's continue on. The question is posed, why do these disciples and these disciples fast, but yours, Jesus, don't? And his answer is this, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. I'll give you all three illustrations, and then we'll go through them. Secondly, no one sews a piece of unshrinked cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new one from old, and a worse tear is made. And thirdly, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst in the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So if you just read that, and I, I remember growing up and looking at stuff like this, I'm like, what in the world? Aren't these illustrations supposed to help us understand the text, not confuse us more? Right? Well, let's go through these real quick and, uh, and see what Jesus is meaning. Start with the wedding. Uh, raise your hand if you're married in this room, please. We're going to have some interaction. Okay, raise your hand if you and your wife have probably been married the longest in this room. Who's probably been married the longest? Anybody here married longer than 50 years? I got... Family pointing at people, right? Okay. More than 50 years, obviously. 55? More than 55? More than 60? Still more than 60? Where am I? Okay. All right. Now, without being too detailed, answer this question. Okay, married people. After the wedding, where'd you go? Thank you. A honeymoon, right? A honeymoon, looking forward to, to getting the ceremony all done so we can go get on that plane or whatever and enjoy the sunshine or the beaches or the whatever, right? We have a honeymoon. Back in the day, they didn't have them. Now, for some, that may have been a deterrent for marriage, but for others, it wasn't. Because instead of honeymoons, they had a week-long open house with continual feasting and celebration, Right? So get married and then let the party begin, right? We have receptions now that last for a couple of hours, but just envision having your reception last all week long. And the food just keeps coming and it keeps coming, all right? That's what we have going on in, in the context of what Jesus is talking about. 
no honeymoon, a week-long open house with continual fasting and celebration. That was considered to be the happiest week in the lives of the guests, right? Because they got to essentially take the week off and celebrate with these folks, right? So for me, that means I'm going to start scheduling 52 weddings a year, right? That's what I'm thinking right about now. Now, the rabbis had given a rule here, set some parameters, and said that guests were exempt from all fasting at this point. And all in attendance are relieved of all religious observations which would lessen their joy. Right? So we know that fasting is supposed to be taking place. And as far as the Pharisees are concerned, this is every Monday and Thursday, folks. Right? But the rabbi said, you know what, it's okay that Monday and Thursday of that wedding, to abstain from the fasting because that's going to take away from your joy at the reception, right? And folks, if you think about it for a minute, if we had to fast every fourth Thursday of the year, don't you think it would cramp your style in November to get to that fourth Thursday and have to fast, right? I would have a problem with that. It would steal my joy, y'all. And so I'm thinking, thank you, Rabbi, I'm going to go ahead and take this exemption. All right? Anything that is going to steal your joy at that, uh, that marriage supper that is taking place is okay to uh, abstain from. It's a great picture here. We're, we're not merely guests, though. If you think about yourself and, and me, follower of Jesus Christ, we are not merely guests before God. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we have a, a better standing than the guest at the, at the wedding, right? Scripture tells us that we are the bride of Christ, which then pictures for us that as a follower of Christ, we get continuous joy. Uh, God came to give us life more abundant. Christianity brings with it joy that is perpetual if we take it and cultivate it. Now, we may not always be happy. Wives, husbands, in those relationships called marriage, we're not always happy, are we? And in our life, we may not always be happy, but one thing rings true for every believer. We can always be joyful. They're not the same thing. We can always be joyful because even in the midst of that argument that you may be having with your spouse or that disagreement that is causing you to not be happy in that moment, The fact of this right here, and last week what we talked about, what happened on that tree is still true in the midst of your arguments or your discouragement or whatever you're facing in that marriage. Christ has still risen. We can always find joy, no matter what the circumstance is, no matter what your physical well-being is. Maybe you're sick, maybe you are not here today and you're having to watch this later this week or next week because you're ill. You know what? You can still find joy while you are sitting or laying sick in bed. One of the joys uh, that Pastor Mark and I have at times and we haven't had lately um, but is visiting sick people in the hospital at times or going to the care center, being able to uh, share a message to the folks that are there that are, are ill or, or otherwise unable to be out on their own. And you know what? 
They are folks that if anybody should be upset or or not be joyful, I would think it's them because their bodies are struggling or whatever the case may be. And yet they're some of the most joyful people. Here I am. I'm standing before you reasonably healthy. Why am I not finding joy every moment of every day? Why? Because I get my eyes focused on something else. We need not do that. The Pharisees have their minds. The scribes are focused on the wrong things. They are legalistically minded, focused on on rules and regulations, and you must do this, 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 and this to be godly, and never mind the fact that, oh, God is walking amongst us. They don't even notice. But that's what God or Jesus is speaking to, that as long as the bridegroom, as long as I am here with you in your presence, there is no need to fast. Why are my disciples not fasting right now? Because what is it? Oh, fasting is to seek the presence of God. My disciples don't need to seek it. I'm right here. Yeah, hello, right? The days will come, however, verse 20, when the bridegroom is taken away, when Jesus dies on the cross. And then they will fast in that day. Second, we see this illustration of of the cloth. Uh, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. The kingdom of God here that Jesus is is here to preach and proclaim cannot be uh, regarded merely as just a patch of cloth to go over the regulations of the Mosaic law or the extra biblical traditions that have been created. Jesus didn't just come with his piece of cloth to fix something, put it over top of a small tear. Jesus brings a new era with him altogether. New ways. A new life he brings. This new fabric that Christ brings, it can't be interwoven with the tired fibers of old religion. It'll simply just tear it apart. And thirdly, no one puts wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skin and they'll both be lost. You see, the wineskin has this uh, natural elasticity and strength that would allow when you put new wine in it, uh, as it ferments and expands, this this new wine cloth or, uh, or leather would be able to stretch and expand with it. So then you can imagine if you take an old wineskin that has already been expanded and put new wine in it, there's, there's no more elasticity to it. It's going to break. It's going to burst. It can't give. It's too brittle, too inflexible. The Pharisees are the wineskins here. And Jesus brings us new life, the wine, that we may grow and expand in him. When Christ fills the wineskins of our lives, uh, we, the, the swelling of life within us stretches us to new limits. This new life is such a dynamic change, brings such a dynamic change, that the previous religions or traditions or way of life must go away, must be put aside. Practically speaking, and I've mentioned this with the students many times in Ephesians or in Colossians when Paul is talking about putting off 
the old and putting on the new because they don't mix. We must allow Christ to modify our thinking and our very lives. So when we accept Christ, we're accepting new life. We need to put aside the old. Because if you try to live your life and mix this uh, sinful lifestyle with your Christian lifestyle, this is oil and water, folks. It's not going to mix. You can't find a happy medium between uh, Christ's and God's holiness and all of our sin. Find the passage in Scripture for me that tells us of the respectable sins that we are allowed to continue in while all the while enjoying the grace of God and he be pleased with that behavior. Find it for me, please. You won't. Next question. One Sabbath... Verse 23, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees, okay, keeping their eyes open because they don't like Jesus. They're trying to find every misstep. The Pharisees were saying to Jesus, look, why are they, your disciples, doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest, or excuse me, which is not lawful for any to eat but the priest, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the, what we're looking at here, the Pharisees, they have this very restrictive interpretation of the law, which limited them from considering the needs that David and his men had there. In situations of need like this, actions are permitted on the Sabbath that are otherwise not permitted. Take what you need to fill yourself, but the, the rules here is if you're hungry and you need food, go to your neighbor's field if they have food and get the food that you need to eat and satisfy yourself. Now, don't take baskets to fill. To, to, it's kind of like uh, the manna. Take what you need just for now, but don't uh, hoard it for the next day kind of a thing. right? So take what you need that's going to satisfy you and then move on. Don't harvest things. Don't get your uh, pals together and get all your combines and start the harvest today, okay? But if you're hungry, go grab the corn you need and eat it and be filled. That is okay. We see here that uh, man is not to be confined by the Sabbath. The Sabbath has actually been a gift that has been given to us by God, and it's intended for our physical and our spiritual refreshment. It's not for the benefit, or excuse me, it is for the benefit of us, of man. You see there at the, the last part, the Sabbath was made for who? Man, not man for the Sabbath. The Pharisees have this all misunderstood. But the thing that we need to take note of here is that if Jesus is truly Lord of mankind, and the Sabbath is made for man, then isn't the Lord the Lord of the Sabbath too? 
Yes, absolutely. And so here Jesus is on the Sabbath. I would, rec- uh, I would suggest that anything Jesus chooses to do on a Sabbath, pay attention because it's okay. Right? Jesus is taking these opportunities to challenge the Pharisees and their understanding and belief of fee- uh, uh, excuse me, the fasting, and also the Sabbath. Continue on into chapter 3. We'll look at one more instance of the Sabbath. Again, and this is the same day, the same Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, being the Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. All right, Accuse him here. Uh, this is... Where am I at? My notes... There we go. Category is the Greek word here, which means to bring charges against. So they're not just looking so that they can point a finger, but they want to bring formal charges against him. They're looking and following his every step so that they can put together as much evidence as they possibly can to charge and bring against Jesus. Verse 3, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, to those that were there, Now it's Jesus' turn, okay? First you saw two questions made to Jesus. Now Jesus is going to ask the question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to them, said to the man, excuse me, hey, stretch out, I added hey, sorry, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So, to do good would not have violated the Old Testament law here, but it would have violated the extra-biblical or pharisaical traditions that were created. And you know what? From God's standpoint, that is okay. Why? Because extra-biblical is not biblical, hence the extra. Tradition is not necessarily a biblical thing. Their tradition misses the point of the Mosaic Law, which is to love God and one's neighbor. So if, if, the law, or if the Mosaic Law is to love God and love one's neighbor, then should I not be able to do good for my neighbor? Should I not be able to save life of my neighbor? The Pharisees, we see here at the the end, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. The Herodians here are a a group of Jews that followed Herod Antipas and Roman law. Okay, So so they were kind of like the far left or right, whichever side you want to call it. And then you've got the Pharisees, which were the complete opposite side. Okay? These are the legalistic, religious uh, folks. So in, in, a, in a way, these are two enemies. right? Now, if you remember your world history, or American world, or excuse me, just all around world history, uh, you may know that we had a battle or a war called World War II. Okay? The United States and Britain, they did this very thing. And Winston Churchill illustrated it with this quote, uh, and I think he got it from somewhere else, I don't know where, but I know that he, he had mentioned this, that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the United States and Britain found an enemy, Russia, and said, you know what, Russia? We have a common enemy, Hitler. Why don't we join together where we can and take them out? That's what's going on here. We've got the Pharisees and we've got the Herodians that are like, you know what? We're enemies, but you know, we have a common enemy, that Jesus guy. Let's work together to destroy him. And as we all know, there came a day where Jesus was put on trial and was accused and was sentenced to death by the Jewish people. You'd think that they won, but in fact they didn't. Jesus himself won because he had a bigger plan that he understood and he knew. But the people of the day were missing out on. Even God's very own disciples were were struggling to understand what it was that Jesus was speaking of. Even at the wedding feast, he was saying, the bridegroom will will no longer be with you in your presence He's saying, I'm going to die and I'm, I'm going to satisfy the, the righteous judgment and wrath of God on the cross. Die for, for all of mankind's sins and be raised. Amen. Which brings us to this table before us. Now, we have a tradition, but this is a biblical command of observing the Lord's table. Right? And so that is what we do. And, and I place the table here with the, the, I was about to say Tupperware. That's not Tupperware. <laughs> with, with our beautiful trays here, right? That we keep the, the bread and the, the cup in. So let me take a moment to say, if you think that we're serving from this and you don't have your little cup, you're wrong. Can you please go get the cup from the back? All right. But I I put it here for a reason. One, it's a symbolic thing. It helps put our attention on the cross and on Jesus and what he did. right? But the reason it's here is because I want to encourage us not to get so extra biblical in our thinking that communion's not really communion unless the pastor's standing up here before you at this table with these trays, the deacon's sitting right here getting ready to pass them from aisle to aisle. Okay? What's truly important and biblical is the fact that we are remembering what Jesus did on that cross. Amen? So whether you're like me and you miss the, the Welch's grape juice in the cup, okay, and you miss having like a, a real uh, oyster cracker and you have to settle for this like piece of styrofoam that's in here, okay? Now, let me tell you, uh, a couple of months ago, Pastor Mark and I were talking about this and, and he rebuked me. Very seriously, actually, right? He rebuked me. He doesn't know he rebuked me, okay? It was in his look, all right? God used that look to rebuke me because I was back there. We're going through two services, and we have this joke, hey, you're taking communion twice a day, all this kind of stuff. Um, but I said, you know what? I'm, I'm actually not. I'm back there, and, and I'm not really eating that wafer because it's gross. You know, I'm thinking about it, and my heart, I think, is right. And, and he gave me this look. That God used to, to rebuke me and say, like, seriously, that is the lamest thing I could have ever heard, right? And, and in that moment, I felt conviction, and, and I've been eating this thing ever since, you know, trying to really focus, right, on what it means. Because the truth is, it's not a matter of what it is that you're eating, okay? It's not the representer, 
Okay, the juice or the cracker, it's the represented, right? And so as we come before this table as a tradition or something symbolic, let us focus on what it's for. And so as we open this up and take this wafer, this cracker, as I say, a piece of styrofoam, whatever, you know what? This, regardless of what it is, is what we are using right now to represent the body of Jesus Christ. And we need to respect that. We need to respect that God loved us so much he sent Jesus down to this earth to die a terrible death, have his body sacrificed for you and for me. So would you, in a moment of humility and contriteness right here with me this morning, would you bow your heads and take a moment to recognize the truth of this that represents the body of Jesus? Father, we are grateful as we remember the death that you died. We thank you for this. May we continually remember the body that was broken for us. Additionally, here we have juice. And I was uh, evaluating this juice the very first time we were out in the parking lot. All right? And don't lie, many of you were too. You drank this and thought, hmm, that's different. But again, I urge you, as I urge myself and had to be rebuked with that look, to remember it's not about that juice. It's not about whether it's Welch's or it's whatever this is. But again, it's what this represents. And as the writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of God's blood, there is no remission of sins. And then he says, drink ye all of it. So I encourage you, remember and be grateful for the shed blood for you and for me. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its authority in our lives and for this church that we are founded on your word and that the things that we endeavor to speak and preach from this very pulpit are in accordance with you and that word. We thank you that you did walk amongst us, that you did bring this new gospel, this new life for us, that you died on the cross for us, you were raised again and are now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for us. God, I'm grateful for your body that was broken and for your blood that was shed to be the final sacrifice, the everlasting sacrifice to save us from the penalty of our sin, to save us from the power of sin in our lives. And God, when you come back to bring us to yourself, save us from the presence of sin. God, may we never forget that fact. May we always be grateful. And may we live a life that demonstrates that to those around us. May we jettison, put away, put off the old, the old traditions, the old way of doing life, our sinful habits, and may we put on the one true gospel. May we put on Jesus Christ. May we adorn ourselves with the armor of God so that we can stand and withstand the devil on a daily basis. We love you, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. 
In his name we pray, amen. You are the